Hello and welcome to In Good Company on NCS Radio, a monthly radio show for working women with me, Otega Uagba. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women, and I'm also the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Little Black Book, a modern career guide for working women that you can find on Amazon or at all good bookstores. Today's guest is Elizabeth Day, an award-winning journalist and acclaimed author who also happens to be a very good friend of mine. Elizabeth is one of the most impressive people I know. She started her career in journalism at the tender age of 12, before going on to become a staff writer for The Observer, and she's also written extensively for a smorgasbord of impressive titles, including The Times, The Telegraph, The Guardian, The Observer, Harper's Bazaar, and Elle, to name just a few. She's the author of four novels and the host of the chart-topping podcast, How to Fail, in which she interviews successful people on the failures that have shaped their lives, with guests ranging from the likes of author Sebastian Fawkes to singer Lily Allen. And, of course, there's her book of the same name, which is out on April 4th. Part memoir, part manifesto, How to Fail is a celebration of things going wrong that covers everything from dating to careers to babies and marriage. It's based on the simple premise that understanding why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. It's a book that will make you laugh and cry, which is such an overused cliche, but in this case, it's actually true. One of the chapters made me cry so much that I had to put the book down for a few days and come back to it. And at points when I was reading it, I was laughing so loudly on the bus that the person sitting opposite me actually asked what I was reading. There's no Ask Ortega segment today, as I wanted to give as much time over to Elizabeth's interview as possible. But rest assured, Ask Ortega will be back next month because I love reading your emails and answering your questions. So do email podcast at womenwho.co if there's something on your mind. And now, over to Elizabeth. Yeah. You started your career in journalism at the age of 12 as the columnist for the Derry Journal, <laughs> which I love. Um, how did that come about? That makes me sound like such a precocious twat. I it's mean, like unbearable. No. I'm really sorry. <laughs> makes you sound like a really, um, like a go-getter. Yeah, I was. I was, <laughs> I was terrifyingly focused, I think, from quite a young age. Mm. I can remember at four wanting to write books. Because I think I think it just came from loving books and being read them by my parents because mm. there were no writers in my family. And um, as I got older, as I got to the terrifyingly aged stage of seven, <laughs> when I was seven, I, I remember thinking about it and I was like, well, I can't just go straight into writing books. Mm. I need to have, you know, a quote unquote proper career first. I need to earn some money. And so I thought, well, what's the closest thing I can do? to writing books, I guess it's being a journalist. And that's what I'll do first as a sort of training for ultimately writing novels and to earn some money. The joke's on me on that, by the way, because (laughs) journalism, you're never going to be a millionaire. Um, But because I had those very early ambitions, in a way, it made it easier for me to make choices. Whereas my older sister, I'm one of two, my older sister was good at everything across the board and really struggled then when it came to even making choices for her GCSEs and A-levels. And then Mm. later, in terms of like what career she wanted to do, because she could have done anything. Whereas I was very much, I had like a pocket of talent, which was English. And when I stated my ambitions at that young age, it becomes a really positive circle in a way, because then your teachers start thinking 
oh, she's interested in English, so I'm going to compliment her and I'm going to encourage her. So um, that's all a long preamble to saying that at the age of 12, I met my first real-life journalist. I grew up in the north of Ireland and I happened to live in the middle of nowhere, but 20 minutes down the road from us, there was a couple who set up uh, Northern Ireland's first health farm. <laughs> and people used to come there. It was like an old school health farm. People used to come there to lose weight. And I remember meeting this woman called Linda Gilby, who was a journalist for a newspaper called Sunday Life. And Alfie, who ran the health farm, was a friend of my parents and said, Elizabeth might be interested in meeting her. And I met this woman and she honestly changed the course of my life. And she said to me, OK, she took me really seriously, which was one thing, which I think is always really important with children, not to patronise them. And she's like, if you're serious about being a journalist, then you should get as much experience as you possibly can and you should start right now. And I took that to heart and I wrote to every single local newspaper. I bought copies and then... I found their addresses on the back, on the newsprint, and I physically wrote to them because this was before email. And um, I said, I think you should have a children's column and I am 12 and I'm willing to be your children's columnist. And the editor, Pat McCart of the Derry Journal, got back to me and said, well, this sounds like a very interesting prospect and will you come and meet me? And so my mother had to drive me to his house at the weekend and I had a meeting with him with my mother there and he was absolutely lovely and he was like, I love this idea and I think you should do it and you should make it fortnightly and let's see what you've got. And I wrote my first column on Kylie and Jason and <laughs> that was it. What was what did you say about Kylie and Jason? I don't know about you, Otega, but I, as a child, was extremely opinionated. Yeah, that sounds like me. I feel like my life has, has been a process like being born with strong opinions, losing them around my 20s and then regaining them again in my 30s. Yeah, that sounds about me. <laughs> yeah. I was once on News Round when I was a child and I was asked what I thought about chewing gum and, you know, should we be allowed chewing gum in schools? My mum still has this video of quite draconian eight-year-old <laughs> me saying, no, I think it should be banned in schools. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't, also, I think the funny thing is I think I actually didn't think that strongly about it, but I just yeah. felt pressured to like say something provocative. That's so funny. Um, so, so similarly, my first column was about how awful Kylie and Jason were and how terrible it was that all these Australian soap stars were dominating our charts. They oh went my really God. <laughs> I know. That is so opinionated. I love it. And I actually loved Kylie and Jason. I had posters of them on my wall and I interviewed Kylie Minogue recently and I was like massively fangirled over her and she was a massive part of my childhood. But I think my point was... Uh, there's too many of them and what about really great bands like the Beatles I was going through oh Beatles face. I was like there's just no space for them anymore in the charts is there so that was my first column and and the column went on for about a year and a half and I got paid for it and I remember the enormous sense of achievement mm. I got from receiving my first paycheck for £72 mm. and I remember buying my first ever pair of Doc Martin boots with that money. And I put purple laces in them and they were my pride and joy because I had earned them. Mm. Do you think that taught you something about the value of money at that age? Definitely. I grew up extremely aware of the value of money, partly because my parents are amazing parents and went through, as many parents do, as many families do, like money problems. And so I was very, very aware of the power of saving, of being sensible. Um, and I knew from very early on that I wanted to be independent as well. I think that's maybe a younger sibling thing. I was always desperate to keep up with my sister and desperate to be my own person and to make my own way. 
And so as soon as I could, I, I really relished the chance to earn my money and to put it in my bank account and have that sense of control over my own existence. I think it's a good thing because I think it gave me drive. So there's four years between me and my sister, which is a big enough gap for that for it to be really noticeable. And as I said, my sister was so talented at so many things. She was like an amazing artist and she was really lovely and got on very well with other children. Whereas I was this slightly <laughs> obstreperous, stubborn, stubborn like <laughs> seven-year-old. Um, and um, and I, I, so I aspired to that. And I also aspired to a, a degree of self-definition without wanting to sound too worthy about it. But it was like making my own mark was very important to me, which is why I think seeing my name in print was extremely important to me, as well as the paycheck that came with it. It was like, look, this is who I am. And that's something that um, honestly has really motivated me. And and in a way, I'm very, very grateful for it because I, well, our mutual friend and your former podcast guest, Dolly Alderton, once said to me, you know, fuel is fuel. And wherever you get your drive from, it can end up being a really good thing. So I'm I'm kind of glad for that now. Mm, definitely. And when did you get your first sort of grown up job in journalism, so to speak? Um, it was right after graduation. So okay. at university, I was still doing I'd done loads of work experience with newspapers all through school. And then at university, I was section editor on the university paper and I was applying for internships. And I had them kind of every summer I would do an internship. And I was lucky because my grandparents lived in London. So I got to stay with them. And um, and then and then I remember in my final year, everyone was doing the fucking milk round. Oh, God, oh. I remember that. And I had never heard the expression before. I found it really depressing because I don't know about you. Did you feel did you then consider going into law or banking or management consultancy? Because I did and I even applied for stuff, didn't get anything just because that was what everyone else was yeah. doing. But that's not what I wanted to do. It wasn't what I wanted to do at all. But like you, I had a moment of like, well, maybe that's what I should be doing. Yeah. Because I was seeing all these incredibly bright, creatively minded, interesting friends of mine all applying to be management consultants. And I could not understand it because the one thing I know is that I could never be a management consultant because mm. there are all those... Um, like um, interviews that you have to join companies. And I remember some of my friends telling me that one of the questions was, how many ping pong balls are there in China? And I'm like, I would not have a first <laughs> fucking clue where to start with that. Sorry, am I allowed to swear? You're she absolutely allowed to. You're absolutely, I think you've sworn like 10 times already. So do carry <laughs> on. So you are allowed to swear. That's terrible. <laughs> no, you're absolutely allowed to swear. <laughs> Fuck shit, bollocks. There you go. Um, and I was like, I just wouldn't have the first clue where to start with that because mm. it's a mathematical one, but you also need to know about population metrics and everything. Anyway, so I knew I wasn't cut out for that, but there was the milk round happening and it makes you feel really anxious if mm. you don't have a career plan already sorted. Yeah. And um, I remember my friend saying, let's go to this careers fair. And I absolutely hate careers fairs, um, again, because it, it feels a bit like you're just going around being shopped for. Yeah, it's like a meat market. And then you also feel like you're trying to impress, you know, because then you hear these stories about people who said some sort of really smart quip at a careers fair and were given a job as CEO of McKinsey off the back yeah. of that. So you're kind of trying to apply for a job. Yes. whilst also trying to suss out whether this is something you want to do in life. They don't make sense. Totally. You're trying to nonchalantly apply for a job yeah. whilst not being yourself. Yeah. It's a nightmare. But this careers fair was for media and she wanted to get into publishing and actually she did go into publishing. So I went along with her basically as her plus one with a complete sense of cynicism about the whole thing. And the first person I walked into was this like 
haphazard-looking stall that had clearly been kind of cobbled together at the last minute. And there was this one guy there and no one else was talking to him. And it was so bizarre. He was the deputy editor of the Londoner's Diary on the Evening Standard. <laughs> Just such a... It's the first time he's ever done a careers fair. Oh, my God. He didn't know what he was doing there. No one was talking to him. And I was like, oh, I want to get into journalism, but I'm thinking of doing a graduate course because that was one thing that lots of people said you should do is get... Oh, so like a re- master's exactly, at City. Exactly, okay. like at City, exactly. Or I thought I would do a traineeship on a local newspaper. So that's mm. what I was thinking. And he was like, yeah, that sounds really sensible. Why don't you come in for a week's work experience? And that's what happened. And I went in for a week's work experience July. And at the end of that week, they'd offered me a job. And I was incredibly lucky. I mean, I would love to sit here and say I was so brilliant but it was that someone had just left (laughs) but I mean they wouldn't have offered you that job if you weren't also good at what you did so I think because I think that's a thing that women especially tend to do and I do it myself I'm guilty of doing it but you kind of put certain successes down to luck but if you'd been shit at writing they wouldn't have given you that job so you can claim that success okay that's kind of that's true I'm going to claim it (laughs) and I did bring in some stories and I think that and uh, because you know I knew I was so passionate about journalism so I, I was enthusiastic to be there and I had on the my third day of work experience an interview with the then editor of the entire paper, Max Hastings. Mm. And um, I was really nervous and I got hiccups and I oh <laughs> stopped hiccups for ages before. And then luckily they disappeared. And then I had this interview with Max Hastings, who was really lovely to me and uh, and offered me a job. And then afterwards, someone said, oh, he likes tall people. I was like, oh, thanks. Way to like... <laughs> Take the wind out of my sails. I know, exactly. I was like, well, if my height's got me that. And what did the what does being a diarist involve? Because in my head, it's kind of snooping around for gossip. Yeah. Is that the case? Yes. So that's a really good question. The, the Londoner's Diary had a sort of highbrow intention mm. to be not quite a gossip column. Yeah. So a lot of their items were about politicians and still are to an extent about politicians news readers like it was a sort of what they perceived to be a slightly higher caliber of celebrity yeah. and it was at the time that the 3am girls were sort of starting so there was that level of gossip column and diarists mm. and then there was the london's diary which was slightly more sedate mm. but it was a really now looking back on it it was amazing training because i would have to go out to really intimidating parties and it sounds very glamorous on paper because I got to go to like the premiere of the Lord of the Rings and things like that (laughs) but if you're a natural introvert which I am it was it was good process for me to adapt to having to be extrovert in certain situations Mm. because those first few parties were really terrifying and I would walk in not knowing anyone you go on your own everyone else knows each other and everyone else is fucking famous Mm. and you not only have to feel okay with that but you've got to go up to these famous people and ask them a question that will elicit some kind of funny or newsy item for the next day's column and so um, there were loads of things going on there and I learned a lot about how if you project confidence people see confidence so even if you don't feel it you can flex that muscle and eventually just through pretending and then through practice you'll get to be it and um and it taught me about how to find a story out of nothing really Mm. and so I developed certain tactics one of them was um a resting bitch face (laughs) which is I have anyway can you show me your resting bitch face unfortunately you guys you won't be able to see it but I want to see it I'll I'll judge it oh that's good that's, that's really good. That's really good, actually. Yeah, I like it. My mother said that when I'm terrified. I, when I was born, the first thing I did, I did two things. My poor mother, I was handed over to her 
and I gave her the most filthy look. Like I was really angry at being born, and then I urinated all over her. Oh, my, protest we! Yes, literally, like you ripped me from the womb. Like I was having such a good time as there. I think lots of babies look quite angry about being born. Yeah, when, as I, they come out. I mean, you would be, wouldn't you? I'd be furious. Traumatic. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> anyway, so I had a resting bitch face, which meant that people generally didn't approach me because I was sort of nervous people approaching me. So that gave me an illusionary level of control and that I was like I'll choose to go up to that person so I looked like I knew what I was doing um and then the other thing it taught me was like always to have a question in my backpack so Mm. my fail safe question was um who do you think is going to be the next James Bond oh I see it's quite it's just nice and sort of cultural topic everyone's got an opinion as I said because I actually talk about this in the book and how to fail everything I've ever learned from things going wrong I know you would want me to do that, Otega. Out April 4th, in I case you missed that. I have learned from you. I've learned from Little Black Books. I love, I love self-promotion. The more <laughs> self-promotion, the better. But I say in the book, it's because British people are unhealthily obsessed with who's going to be the new James Bond. Yeah. Literally everyone has, even if someone doesn't have an opinion on it, that makes it newsworthy. Yeah. I, it's, it's ridiculous. So I got a lot of stories that way. I've heard Olivia Coleman's in the running, apparently. She's in the running the for everything. Yeah, she She's is. probably in the running to become the next president of the United States. Probably. We should give it a go. <laughs> Do a better job than Trump anyway. Um, was that experience at times quite bruising? Yes. By the end of the year, I was really ready to move on. And it felt never ending at times because... It was also, it was my first job. I was in my 20s. I just left university. Your 20s are really difficult, as we've spoken about before. They're very confusing time. There are no signposts. You're not doing exams anymore. Everyone else seems to be having an amazing time of it. I was in a series of long-term relationships. So I was like juggling career, um, lack of kind of exam definition alongside having these a series of mini marriages effectively where I was like buying groceries and, and cooking for my man. And and I really lost a bit of myself during that time. And um, the diary was, yeah, you know, there were, there were people who were annoyed that I was asking them trivial questions, understandably. Mm. So um, some celebrities were rude and mean to me. Um, actually, one of them, John Simpson, um, the BBC World Affairs editor was very rude to me once on the phone. And then, bless him, he called back to apologise. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Half an hour later, he called back. He was like, I'm really sorry. You caught me off guard and I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. And I just thought that's the mark of a really dignified person. And yes. I've always remembered that. I thought yes. that was really impressive that he did that. Mm. So it was bruising in that sense. And it was also bruising in the sense that I was just working out my own boundaries as a person and as a journalist. So um, sometimes my friends or even my granny at one point, there were like stories that I had got from them and um, I had to be very careful with how I was going to use them or if I was going to use them because I didn't want to... I didn't want to betray their trust and I also didn't want to disappoint my bosses. And I think, again, those are dilemmas that happen a lot, particularly as a journalist in your 20s. And and it's good. It's good for you to learn those lessons, but it's tough at the time. I'm really lucky now that I don't have to do that sort of selling your friend down the river journalism. I never had to, obviously. But when you're in your 20s and you're trying to establish yourself in a very competitive industry you sometimes lose sight of the things that are really important. You sometimes get waylaid and you think, it's crucial that I get this story and I stand it up and I get it sourced. And you don't think, no, you know what? It's crucial that I have a long-lasting friendship Mm. and that's going to be so much more important to me as I get older. I now, 
a hundred percent realize that and my friendships are the most important thing in my life and and I'm also lucky that having established myself I am now in the wonderful position that I can generally choose the sorts of journalism that I want to do and I can choose how open I want to be and um, that's a lot more comfortable for me but my heart really does go out to those people you know I I was never um, a sort of ruthless ta- that that archetype that sort of cliche of a ruthless tabloid journalist. Mm. I was never having to do hack. I was never hacking into anyone's phones or anything like that. Um, but there were moments that were like ethically, I had to really work out where I stood as an individual, and I'm very grateful for them now because I I did do a lot of soul searching at that time. And th- there was one particular incident actually where. Um, I was sent, I'd moved, I moved on to the Sunday Telegraph after the Evening Standard as a news reporter. And I was sent to doorstep, which means you, yeah, you go to someone's door and you knock on their door and you ask them to talk to you about something often very traumatic that they've been through. And this particular, oh, this is so awful. A 15 year old schoolboy had taken his own life because he had been being bullied. And the editor of the Sunday Telegraph at the time thought very passionately about bullying because he had been bullied Mm. and he said can you go and see if that his parents would consider talking to you so I made the trip um it was in the north of England and I got to their door and I knocked on the door and a family member opened the door and I said why I was there and he was like it's not a good time it's the day of the funeral and I felt horrendous and I and nowhere near as horrendous as they must have felt. And I said, don't worry, that's complete. I'm just, I'm so sorry. And mm. I'm going to leave you in peace. And I, and I left and I'd written a letter and I left the letter with this person. And then the next day, the father did, agree, wanted to speak to me actually. But um, what was interesting about that was that I left straight away. I called the news desk. I was like, this is what's happened. And they said, we'll just stay there, like stay in the par- parked car outside and just, like try again later, go back this evening and try again. And I said to the news desk, okay, yeah, I'll do that. But no one was on the ground with me. So I was like, of course I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to keep them happy by saying that's what I'm going to do. And I'm just going to leave it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that was completely the right thing to do. And as and 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 he and his father chose to speak to me. And mm. I think sometimes people want to talk to you, but they're always going to come to that decision on their own. And you should never strong arm them. Looking back at that incident, I think it's also a marker of how young I was in that I didn't feel I could say no um how young I was the gender I was and the specific time for women in media that that was so it was way before me too I felt I genuinely I've done a lot of analyzing of this recently because of me too I genuinely felt lucky to be there I was like I'm so lucky that I'm a woman and I'm operating in this man's world and I didn't think to question the parameters of that man's world like I was being edited by men and asked to do these things by men and and I didn't think that I had enough agency and of course now I would say to myself you do and you can say no. Can we talk a bit about what you've just said about not feeling you could say no to things because that was that's quite a recurring theme in the book actually you talk about feeling like you couldn't say no, especially when you're in your 20s and your 30s. And you also wrote an article for The Pool in which you describe yourself as a people pleaser of near pathological proportions. Mm. And I want to understand what effect you think that had on your career. That is such a good question. And I've never been asked it. Because in some ways, I think the effects were really great for my career. Because um, 
through my 20s, I was in no doubt that career was my focus. Mm. And although I was also in a series of relationships, long-term monogamous relationships, I knew that my 20s were, it was a decade where I really wanted to establish myself professionally. So I worked very, very, very hard. And part of working very hard for me was, was always being the one who said yes. So when an editor asked me to stay late, when an editor asked me to I don't know, fly to Madrid at a moment's notice. I don't think that ever happened, sadly. But um, get a train to Luton at a moment's notice <laughs> is probably more likely. Um, if an editor asked me to like turn around a piece of copy really quickly, asked me to work Christmas, everything, I would say yes to all of it. And that was because I wanted to please them and it was because I wanted to be seen as perfect and um, and better than, better than my internal critic would have me to believe I actually was. And um, and so I would say yes to everything. And obviously that had a great knock on effect in that that generates more work because then you're the one who does stuff. Mm. And that generated a lot of opportunities for me because I got a chance to write features in different sections of the paper. And then that led me to where I am now. So that was one good thing. I think there were real downsides too in that despite being a feminist, I never once asked for a pay rise in all the years that I was on staff on newspapers. So it was like 17 years or something. It never crossed my mind to ask for a pay rise. Did you get given pay rises? I got given the pay rise. Yes, I did. Um, at the Sunday Telegraph, I actually did get given pay rise. But the way I got pay rises was I w- sometimes I would be um, I would be approached by other newspapers who wanted mm. to employ me. And then I would use that as a bargaining tool. Yeah. And then I would get a pay rise. Or I would get the annual, whatever it was, 1.5% pay rise that had been negotiated with the National Union of Journalists. Um but I, I just felt, well, who? I mean, obviously, I'm not worth more money than I than the money I'm being paid. So that was one thing that was going on in my head. Yeah, that's what I wanted to pick up on actually, because you saying that you were this people pleaser who felt like you had to say yes to everything, and also not asking for pay rises. And there are so many reasons why women and also men don't do that. But it sounds to me almost a bit like you doubted your abilities. Yes, I absolutely did. Oh, hugely doubted my abilities all the way along, yeah. which I find so extraordinary because. You know, but I remember when we first met, actually, the evening we first met, and for everyone listening, we, your book, your last book, The Party, came out around the same time as my first book, Little Black Book, and we were at this fourth estate showcase dinner, and everyone had to stand up and give a speech, and then you gave your speech towards the end of the evening, I remember this, you were wearing a yellow dress, I remember it so well, and I turned, I'd read your work, but I didn't know, I hadn't, like, put a face to a name, and I turned to my editor, Michelle, and I was like, who is that? She is amazing. I'm going to be a friend. And the words that Michelle used to describe you were a superstar journalist. She was like, oh, she's just this like superstar journalist. Like she's really like a big deal, which no, but that's what she said. But I find it funny. And the way, and then I also texted a friend actually, and I was on my way home from this dinner. I was like, do you know this journalist, Elizabeth Day? And she was like, oh yes. And like was telling me all about you. But the aura that you had around you and other people's perceptions of you sounds like it was very at odds with how you perceived your career to be. Wow, that's a really profound thing to say. And I actually feel quite emotional because, um, by the way, while that was going on, I was whispering to my editor about Otega. Who is that? She is amazing and the most stylish person I've ever seen. I'm and um, that's that's so interesting. That's It's very rare in life that you get a chance to hear what was going on yeah. in someone's perception of you when you first met. So thank you for that, because that definitely wasn't my self-perception. And I'm not sure where I got this lack of faith in myself. It's 
definitely got a lot better with age, but it was really crippling for a very long time. And I think maybe it comes from that whole perfectionist tendency. Like mm. if, and that comes from that drive, that early drive I was describing. And I suppose it comes a bit from having done well at school and therefore thinking that people's love for you is predicated on you doing well. And it was a combination of all of that. But it was also, to be totally honest with you, I spent eight years working at The Observer as a feature writer. And when I got it, that was my dream job because The Observer is an amazing paper and has incredible features at the longest length that you get in British UK, in British papers. And how old were you when you started working there? 29. Okay. And I uh, was saying yes to everything again. <laughs> and, um, and actually, I found The Observer a really difficult place. It's a place that is still managed predominantly by men. Good men, many, many good men, but there's still that culture. And I didn't feel I was taken seriously because I was young and maybe because I was a woman and also probably because I was saying yes to all the shitty stuff that the other feature writers wouldn't do. So I did loads and loads of those Q&A interviews, which are verbatim interviews that, that take a lot of work, but you get none of the glory. And I was doing all the stuff that I felt other people weren't doing. And I felt hugely intimidated because I was on this paper and I'd read the other feature writers for years and they were all at the top of their game. And I felt that I had to really try hard to make my mark and to keep up. And I felt that people didn't trust me because a lot of people at The Observer and The Guardian have worked there for years. And and it has been their life goal to work there. It's a bit like the BBC. Mm. Whereas I had come, I had actually come from a right-wing newspaper and people didn't really know what to make of me. And I didn't seem to fit in. And it was a bit like moving to a sort of isolated rural village and it takes 10 years to be treated as like one of the villagers. <laughs> Did you feel like that for the entire eight years you were there, like a slightly outsider? I actually really did, yeah. Mm. And I, I don't think it's anyone's fault other than mine and I had some great colleagues and great bosses there but it was a place that I felt I ended up feeling very frustrated because I wasn't it felt as if I weren't moving forward mm. because I spent eight years there doing the same job that I had been hired to do which was great in that I wrote loads of features that I'm really proud of but it was also I'm someone who needs the feeling of moving I can't feel stagnant I can't feel like trapped in a plant pot with like roots that need to be in a field. Yeah. <laughs> and and I was constantly thinking like, what's the next thing and where do I want to go on? I, and I was frustrated because there were, I felt like there were lots of opportunities on the paper and I kept suggesting things that I could do on top of my normal job. Mm -hmm. And every single time I was turned down. And I think that that's a real shame because, because how you manage, in my eyes, how you manage someone in their late 20s, early 30s, is to make them feel appreciated and to make them feel that there is going to be progress. Totally, totally. Um, and, and in the end, actually, in a way, I'm grateful for it because I felt very ground down. by, And I worked very, very hard, very hard at that paper. Never asked for a pay rise. Also went through a marriage breakdown, fertility treatment, miscarriage. Various things were going on in my home life that were really difficult. And at the end of those eight years, I felt really exhausted and I realised... I haven't got any further and actually I need to leave. If I want to be taken seriously, this was my internal narrative, then um, then I need to leave and to take myself seriously and take a gamble on myself rather than relying on the people, other people. 
And that's why I went freelance and it was the best professional decision I have ever made. And so in the phase that I met you, I think I'd been freelance for a year, two years. Okay. And I was terrified about doing that. I literally left the Observer and I had no- nothing to go on to. Mm. <laughs> and and the reason it was so brilliant for me was because for the first time I was confronted with the disparity between the reality of my situation and what I'd been telling myself about it because other people wanted me to write for them. And I was so astonished. They were like, oh, no, we, yeah, we like your writing. Yes, that's great. Do this piece. And it was astonishing to me because I felt like I'd been penned in to yeah. this organisational structure that wasn't fulfilling me. It sounds like you suddenly just r- realised your own value in a way that you hadn't been able to see it whilst you are at The Observer, which I think is not surprising because I think when you are in a place for eight years and, you know, there is a metric of success and, you know, some people are sort of the the company superstars and they're allowed to do whatever they want and write all the juicy features and you don't feel like you're getting that, then you start to think, oh, they are better than me as opposed to they have found the right sponsor here. They have found the person that backs them. They've made friends with the right person. They've just kind of landed in the right spot. And often I don't think that stuff has anything to do with, not to denigrate anyone, I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, talent, I think it has to do with, you know, much more social stuff and chemistry and having, you know, made best buds with your editor and then all of a sudden yeah. you get all the juicy commissions. I think you're so right. And I also think someone gave me an amazing piece of advice once um, about work where it was when I was at the Sunny Telegraph and another paper had um, offered me a job. And this person, she's she was an older female colleague and unbelievably talented. And she said to me, you should go for wherever wants you the most. Like, whoever you think wants you the most, that's where you should go. And at the time, it seemed like a really sort of straightforward piece of advice. I was like, well, obviously. But actually, I think what she was saying is, like, follow your instinct and your gut. Mm. Because the important thing about someone wanting you is that then they're going to back you. They're going to back that horse that they've invested in. And you have leverage. Exactly. And and that was um, a great piece of advice. And, um, and it's something that I've yeah, realised to a much greater extent in the last few years of, of, of being freelance. Mm. So can you tell me a little bit more about how your life changed professionally when you became freelance? Actually, I want to ask you, you know, a quite probing question, which is how did you make that work financially? Were you nervous about that? Oh my gosh, I was so nervous. And because of what we were talking about earlier, about um, I've always been raised to understand the value of money and to understand how very scary it is when you don't have any. Mm. <laughs> and and the thought of losing, not having money and losing, that's that's one of my, uh, it's a very big fear. And um, because I'm aware how pre- of how precarious it is. So I was very worried about it. And also, because I had a staff job, I had pension and paid holiday and all of that stuff. And um, I was really, it, it was quite a weird decision for me to make. And in, in a way... The me I was then, it was a very it was a very unme decision. But what I realised is that actually that was the real me making the decision. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was very worried. And um, then what happened was I decided to leave the Observer, and quite quickly, the Telegraph got in touch and said we'd like to offer you a contract to do a certain number of features a year, and this is what we'll pay you. And it wasn't an enormous amount, but it was enough to pay my rent every month. Mm. So I was like, okay, for a year, I've got my rent sorted. I also had some savings. I was like, so I've got those as well. So if I'm in real dire straits, I can like dip into those. Mm. And then I was like, 
and now you have to go out and and make the money you need to like buy food and in a way it was there was a beautiful clarity to that um because i knew exactly what pieces i needed to do and how i needed to make it work so in a way i found that en tremendously energizing and my best friend emma who's a psychotherapist always said to me the great thing about working for yourself is that you see the results immediately in your bank balance so you feel less bitter about doing work yeah you actually want to do it yeah. and that was exactly my experience but honestly i remember i went freelance and um i remember looking at my bank balance because you go freelance and suddenly your wage packet stops and it takes a while for and things takes, to build up exactly and even a piece that I'd written that came out after I left the observer it took you know two months for me to be paid for that mm. and I remember looking at my bank balance and it was it was there was like a hundred pounds in it and it was such a panic and then I just like chased everyone who owed me money <laughs> on and then I got some but it was very it was quite it wasn't hand to mouth in the sense that then I got paid and then, the, but it was, it was a very, very thin cushion for mm. a very long time. Mm. But um, I got used to that cushion and I thought, how great is it that it's purely me and the power of my pen or laptop <laughs> that is like paying my rent. And, th and again, that's a really empowering thing. I find it really surprising and very impressive that you were able to make a living from being a writer full-time? Because I think that's incredibly rare these days. I mean, were you just writing? Yeah. That's I unbelievable. <laughs> no, sorry, I don't no, mean were no. you just writing, but that's... that's kind of, you know, you're right, yeah. No one does that these days. No one is able to make a living from full-time writing these days, I don't think. Well, not yeah. very many people. Everyone kind of has a little something, whether they have a podcast or yeah. they work with brands. So I find it really unbelievable that you made a full-time living from being a writer and a journalist I think that's really cool thank you that's really lovely to hear <laughs> thank you and I think I, I think um I would have possibly mm, I don't know I as well as the journalism I'd started writing novels by then so I was getting not huge but I got some advances which is always like a nice again like quite a nice cushion mm. but the only other thing I was doing I would do the Sky newspaper press preview mm. like late at night oh my god you have to get a car to Osterley and God. Um, so so far away. I live in Kendish Town, so it literally took it literally took an hour. And then you'd be given twenty minutes at most to read the front pages of the papers, formulate an opinion. And I'd often be paired with a rampant right winger because I was seen as like the <laughs> liberal, the soft liberal. liberal. Yes. Yeah. God. And then you have to go on on live television for two half hour slots and and talk about the papers. And actually, I got to a stage. I was doing that because again, it was like a nice regular bit of income. Yeah. But. About a year into freelancing, I realised that the writing was enough. And actually, I was doing the Sky News thing almost driven by an ego that didn't exist anymore. Like, it was almost that thing of you're always slightly taught that TV is the best because you're on a screen and isn't that amazing? And I suddenly was like, I don't want to be on TV. Mm. I don't really enjoy it. Mm. I'm going to stop doing it. Yeah. And it was, again, really liberating. I want to change tack a little bit and talk about dealing with criticism because, believe it or not, everyone listening, Elizabeth once got a bad book review. I could ah, not two. believe this. It was a two. <laughs> two. I was being kind. I was <laughs> revealed in, the, in, in your book. I was like, what? Um, but yes, you once got a bad book review for your first novel. You also got lots of very, very good reviews for that novel. But I imagine, I mean, how old were you when that book came out? I was 32 
I just turned 32 when that book came out. I feel like that's a tough age to be. And can you actually just explain to everyone what happened with that? Yes. So, and it's also tough because I was writing it when I was 29. So um, it was a very, as all first novels are, you kind of put everything of yourself into it Mm. (laughs) um, for good and for bad. And so what happened was I wrote this, this novel, it's called Scissors, Paper, Stone, and it's about a man who's in a coma and his wife and his daughter come to his bedside and they discover this like history of family dysfunction. And that book came out at the beginning of 2011. And um, and it was so immensely exciting to have it in a bookshop because yeah. it had been the fulfilment of a literally a lifelong dream. So I was extremely excited about it. And then the reviews came out. And when you write a first novel, it is like opening your ribcage and pressing your heart onto the page there's so much in it there's so much that you've thought about and that you want to express so putting it out in the world is a very exposing thing and um the first review was in the evening standard and to this day i remember who wrote it (laughs) name and shame i'm not going to name this person (laughs) because i have never forgotten I, I bear a grudge like nobody's business. Yep. And um, I'm, I forgive, but I don't forget. So I've never forgotten. And I remember reading this review and it was really sniffy. It was like a patronising review. And one of the things that it said over and over again was that I wasn't as good as Zoe Heller. So why was I trying to be Zoe Heller? And my response is, I love Zoe Heller. She's brilliant. I mean, I'm not trying to be Zoe Heller. Mm. <laughs> and... It struck me as a sort of, now it strikes me as a very unfair criticism because when you're reviewing a book, you should be reviewing that book and not the book that you think it might have pretensions to be. Like, don't review any other books, just concentrate on that one. And um, so I I read that one, but I was able logically to sort of feel okay-ish about it. I went to sleep that night and then the next morning it had been reviewed on an Irish cultural TV programme and someone had, I looked at the link on my laptop and it was a panel, like late night review mm. and every single member of that panel eviscerated it. They said it, it makes every mistake that a first novel can make. Why didn't she have a better editor? It's so badly written. So, there are so many adjectives I hate. Honestly, and I was watching it, even the host got involved. It was like they were egging Jesus. each other on. I know. And um, I watched it with tears rolling down my cheeks. And that was really, really difficult. And then a few things happened that helped me deal with it and that have helped me deal with criticism ever since. One is that my friend Simon called me and said, great art provokes strong opinions. And whilst I wouldn't categorise my novel as great art... His point was, if you write with a unique voice, then you are going to have some people not get it and find it uncomfortable and hate it. And you're going to have some people who absolutely love it and completely understand it. But how much better is that than doing something mediocre that provokes no opinion whatsoever? And Mm. I loved that. The second was um, that my editor rang and was really lovely and was like, well, if you're rubbish, I'm a rubbish editor. (laughs) And she's edited every single one of my books. She's a complete superstar, Helen Garland's Williams. And I love and adore her and I trust her opinion. And that was very important for me to realise that the opinions that count, you should only have a few of them, really. You should have like cornerstone relationships. My The opinions that count to me are my editor, Helen, um, my best friend, Emma, my own opinion, uh, my other half, Justin, like they're the ones that I know I can count on to be honest with me. Mm. And and they're the ones that I care most about. So that's very important to me. And the rest of it, I have to keep reminding myself, is noise, the good and the bad. 
I'm glad you included your own opinion in there as one that you rely on, because I think sometimes we rely too much on sort of external validation to, you know, say that whatever we've done is good or worthy or creative. But actually, if you were happy with it and your standards are high and you read a lot and you write a lot, then that in itself counts for something. But I think all too often, especially with creative work, we allow the value of our work to lie entirely on the opinions of other yeah. people. But actually, if you're satisfied with it, that counts for a lot. Other people might not like it. But for instance, a book that I don't like, and I will say it because she's so wildly successful, we'll never mm. hear this, but I really didn't love I Loved It by Chris Krause, which so many Me people... Me neither! Love. Oh, I'm so glad. Me neither! I'm so glad. I, I, I couldn't I, get into it. I couldn't get past like the first 12 pages. I thought it was... I mean, I'm not going to like go in on it and start <laughs> egging each other on, no. start ripping off, but it was not for me. And, but so many people absolutely love it, you know, rave about it. I think it's been, you know, made into like a Netflix, or Amazon series. But, you know, if Chris Krause were to hear me say that and be like, oh, I guess my book is shit then. That's such a selective way of forming an opinion because there are also hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people who've bought that book and read it and loved it. So I think it's really important to bear in mind. It's actually something that you say towards the end of the book. I'm actually going to read it back to you, read a quote from it. But at the end, I really like the sentence. You said, ultimately, if you're in the business of creating things, then you have to make peace with the reality that not everyone will like or understand what you've created. At the same time, as you must acknowledge, we live in a time when opinions are the most frequently traded global currency. I just thought that was so brilliant. And I also thought what you said about opinions, everyone's got something to say, don't they? Everyone. And now they have the platform to say it. Right. And that's a wonderful thing in many respects, but it's extremely hard then to put yourself out there and and read every single one of those opinions and I, and and I've had to have had a, a good talking to myself about it because mm. for a very long time I was exactly that person that you describe uh, some I was so reliant on external validation because I did have that strong internal critic and um and I still have it it's interesting actually I have it much more with my fiction I think because with non-fiction and journalism I've been doing it now for enough time that I know that just in terms of time, <laughs> I must be good enough to mm. be keeping on doing it. So, I, and I feel like I've learned a lot. Whereas um, fiction is, I'm completely untrained. I've just decided I'm going to write this thing, and I read a lot of books, and and I think it's good. But I need, I, I, I really do with fiction. I'm much more vulnerable in that area, and I think that's good for me to know and therefore take action on, and not look at Amazon comments, which I don't do anymore, mm. and not look at online comments on pieces I've written, which again I don't do anymore. Because when this is the interesting thing, I thought this the other day. I was like, who do I know who has ever commented <laughs> on an online article? So true. And I don't think I know anyone who has done that. If they have done it, they've probably done it to say how amazing it is. Yeah. And also there are so many people out there who have bad opinions, like bad, badly informed opinions. And like you say, they have the platform. Everyone, you know, I believe in freedom of speech. Everyone should be able to express their opinions. But not all opinions are good opinions. Um, So I think it's really important to kind of have your sort of board of directors, so to speak. I want to talk about the personal aspects of the book because when I saw you last week actually this is the first time I'd seen you in person very briefly since I'd actually read the book and I said to you and I didn't mean anything by it but it was just an observation I said to you it's very honest and you looked momentarily taken aback (laughs) did I yeah you did no it's it's fine but then I got to thinking how do you feel about revealing so much of yourself on such a grand scale 
I think if I look taken aback, it was because I don't perceive it as anything special. And what I mean by that is I am a natural sharer. Mm. So it comes very naturally to me to be open about my own experience. And I know that not everyone is like that. I mean, my best friend being a case in point, Emma, is very is very much not like that. And um, and to the extent that sometimes she doesn't like being hugged. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I must be hugged and be told I'm lovable all the time. And it's just so funny because we're we've got so much in common and she's incredible and like my soul sister, but so much separates us as well. So um, when I started doing the podcast, some people were kind enough to say to me, it's very brave of you. It's very brave of you because there's one episode where I'm interviewed about my failures and I've never seen it as brave or exceptional. Therefore, writing the book, it came very naturally to me again to be open about the things that I'd chosen to be open about. And don't get me wrong, there are things in my life that I have never and will never write or speak publicly about. But once I'd made the decision about what subjects I was going to cover, I wanted to make that commitment to the reader that I would be fully honest and real and authentic. Because for me, writing is about connection and feeling less alone, both as a reader and a writer. And in order to connect most fully, I think you need to have that and you need to be honest. And um, and therefore, I can honestly say that the that book is how I want it to be. It's how I set out to write it and I'm proud of it for that reason. That's a very different thing from putting it out into the world. And it's so weird. You play a psychological trick with yourself when you write a book where you think you're writing just for yourself and your editor and you sort of forget that it's then going to be published, hopefully. And loads of people you've never met will read it and have opinions about how you've expressed it and your life. And that bit uh, is is just very anxiety-inducing and somewhat scary. But at the same time, going back to that cornerstone opinion, I believe that I have done a good job. I've done the job that I set out to do. Mm. And that's the most important thing, really. Mm. What was the most difficult chapter for you to write? Uh, It was the most difficult, but it was also the best in a way. And Mm. it was the chapter about how to fail at babies. Because I went through two unsuccessful cycles of IVF and... Then I got pregnant naturally later that same year and then I had a miscarriage at three months. Um, and that was that was a difficult year. And uh, years later, and then after that, my marriage broke down. And a couple of years later, I then froze my eggs. So I had a whole other like fertility experience. And it's something that I don't think has really been written about with depth and honesty and first person insight as much as it should have been written about because I think so many women deal with this. And um, it was the first time that I was able to put down my experience and my thoughts and my anger at the lies that I felt I'd been told without any word count, without any pressure from any any editor. I got to do it exactly how I wanted to do it. And that's an incredible privilege. And it was very cathartic but it was also very emotional. It was very emotional. And actually, I recently recorded the audiobook. And when I got to that chapter, there was such a lovely producer who produced it called Jamie. And he said to me, I'm guessing that this chapter is emotional. So if you need to take a moment, I was like, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. <laughs> and actually, the, the act of reading it out loud and 
reading out loud that passage where I go in and I'm told at a scan at three months that the baby I was expecting has actually has died uh, did make me cry again. And um, so it was very it was very emotional, but in a really, really good way mm-hmm. because it helped me be at peace with it. It really, really did. And I don't think you should write as catharsis. I think that's sometimes dangerous and self-involved. But if catharsis comes about as a byproduct, that's wonderful. I was telling a friend who has gone through IVF about that chapter because I said it's the most honest account I've ever read about women's fertility and IVF and miscarriages. And it taught me a lot of stuff that I didn't know and she said oh must no pick that up and go read it and I think you've actually done a sort of other women a wonderful service by writing about it so openly and so frankly and I think that chapter both the book but especially that chapter are going to be passed around from women to women because I really found it to be incredibly moving it was yeah I just think that you have done something very special by writing about that and by giving yourself over to other people like that. So Thank you so much. That means so much. I'm, I am actually welling up because that uh, is is partly why I wrote it because it yeah. was the chapter I would have liked to have read. Yeah. Um, and I'm really sorry that your friend's having to go through what she's going through. Mm. And that that is just the best thing you could say to me. So thank you. My final question just to wrap up is, and you've kind of touched on it a little bit already, but what, did you want to achieve in writing this book? What is the message that you want people to take away once they've read it? I want people to feel less alone. And by that, what I mean is everyone experiences failure, but not everyone is honest about it. So it can sometimes seem as if we're living in an age where everyone else has perfect lives. And that adds to your sense of personal failure by feeling a sense of kind of overwhelm that everyone else has it sorted and and I think there's a tremendous power that comes from connecting on an honest level about when things go wrong as well as when things go right and that in a way those mistakes that we've made or the lessons that we've learned are things to celebrate um you know there are certain things obviously I don't mean to be very Pollyanna-ish about like incredibly traumatic stuff that can't be easily assimilated. I'm very aware that I am a white middle class, very privileged woman, and I've only had certain experiences, and I can't speak with any authority on a whole ream of stuff. Um, but as far as possible, if one sees failure as an opportunity to build up emotional resilience, to flex that muscle, and if one sees it as something that is not going to define you but which you can put your own definition on by learning something from it that's an enormously empowering thing so if someone were to read the book I would like them to feel whatever they feel but if they were to feel less alone and empowered and stronger because of it that would be my dream. That is such a beautiful message and you are such a beautiful person a brilliant person thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me today I adore you and I adore this podcast and thank you so much for having me and that's it for this month thank you for tuning in for more career inspiration and information follow women who at women who on instagram and twitter or head to our website www.womenwho.co forward slash newsletter to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup, or to apply for a space on our mentor workshop. You can find me at Atega Uagba on Instagram and Twitter, 
And of course, don't forget to buy a copy of How to Fail, which you can find on Amazon or all good bookshops. You won't regret it. If you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe. And as always, please leave us a lovely five-star review whilst you're there. See you next month.